Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. This is the podcast of the International Cardio-Oncology Society. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. Our organization is dedicated to collaboration across disciplines and around the world to facilitate advances in the growing field of cardio-oncology. Today, my guest is Dr. Eric Harrison. Dr. Harrison is a cardiologist located in Tampa, Florida, where he has a very busy private practice, and he's one of the pioneers in cardio-oncology and one of the founders of the International Cardio-Oncology Society, and he continues to serve on our board. And today, he's going to share with us something of the history and the development of cardio-oncology from his own experience. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Steve. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to talk to you about something that's so important to all of us right now. And so cardio-oncology, I was a cardio-oncologist before I even knew it, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it turned out that a long time ago, 34 years ago, there was a patient that had a sarcoma of his leg, femur, and who had surgery and had it amputated and then he was put on adriamycin and he got a cardiomyopathy and he went into heart failure and he had cardiogenic shock and he's on dopamine and he was in Lakeland, Florida, literally dying. Hmm. And it just so happened that we had started a heart transplant program at Tampa General and we did our first transplant. And the second transplant was going to be this gentleman, but the program was halted hmm. by some discrepancy that someone needed it to be certified by an outside physician who was well-established in cardiac transplantation. And so that was my job to make that happen. So there was a big program that I'd taken several people to by plane uh, at Stanford in Palo Alto and that's Dr. Shumway's program and there was a guy who was very active who was the lead cardio cardi cardiologist I guess you'd say and there was also someone that's the lead pathologist in that program so I called up the cardiologist and I said I need to have you help me here in Tampa because I got a patient waiting to be transplanted and the programs put on hold and so it turned out a gift of God that his parents lived in Lakeland. Hmm. I had no idea. So I said, when, would you like to come visit your parents? And he said, yes. So, but he said, I don't have much time. And I really can't stop at Tampa General and give them my blessing. And I said, well, we can arrange that because there's a lot of traffic from here to Lakeland. And so we'll just get you and pick you up in a helicopter because I was medical director <laughs> of a helicopter company, hmm. and we'll bring you over to Tampa General at the helipad. You'll come in, review our program, I'll send the paperwork to you, give us our blessing, and then we'll helicopter you over to Lakeland and we'll drop you off in the high school right down the street from your parents' house. And so that's what came about. Program was green light, we were ready to go, and so we brought over the same helicopter, we picked up my patient, and brought him over to Tampa General. He had his transplant, and I've been a friend of his for 33 years. And he 
did very, very, very well. And we're so happy he saw his grandchildren, he saw kids graduate from college, and high school, and all these things happen and, for him. And what is the connection between that patient and cardio-oncology? Well, he basically had a cardiac problem. He was dying from the side effect um, of the chemotherapy okay. of adriamycin that okay. was used for the sarcoma. Okay. And so that was my first patient. And I said, wow, you know, this is really interesting. And then my second patient was a lady who had a leaky mitral valve. And she was a school teacher. And I saw her and her heart was beating pretty good. She did have a history of breast cancer. And she did have adriamycin for breast cancer. And, but her heart was beating fine. And her mitral valve was leaking. And so we said, well, we'll get her a repair. And we talked to Randy Chitwood, who's in Greenville, North Carolina, at Pitt County Hospital. And he was the leading robotic mitral valve repair doctor. He had more experience than anybody. And so we took her over there. I think I actually went with her. And we took her over there. And she had her transplant, and she came home. And actually, before she went, we had Dr. Chitwood come here. Mm -hmm. And he spent some time with me and met her and went over everything. And so then she came home, and then her heart just sort of pooped out. Hmm. And I was so surprised, and because there was nothing that didn't work in terms of the surgery. But it turned out the heart had no reserve. The reserve had been destroyed by adriamycin, hmm. and I had no idea. And probably the leaky valve may have been as a result of that, where the heart wasn't quite working properly. Hmm. And so, and so all the time I thought it was just a valve problem yeah. and her muscle was okay. And so then I thought about the adriamycin and I went back on that and okay. I said, wow, that's what's going on here. So then we jacked her up on a bunch of medications and uh, she got better and better and better. And then her heart function was normal. And that's been maybe 20 years. And she's retired now from teaching and she's doing great. Mm. Uh, always am so delighted when she comes by because yeah. we have such a history. And so there's my first two cardio-oncology cases when I wasn't even a cardio-oncologist and there was, wasn't such a thing. <laughs> right. You know? So you were starting to make these observations and put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. There's a connection here between the cancer and the heart problems. Yeah, and then we had the people who have radiation. So mm -hmm. there was a lady who had RAI uptake for a thyroid problem, and she had an ectopic thyroid as well as her regular thyroid in her neck, and the ectopic thyroid was in the mediastinum near the origin of the main left coronary artery, and that took up the iodine too, and basically caused her to get sclerosis from the radiation of her main left coronary artery, and she got severe disease. And so I did a cardiac cath on her and found the severe disease, and that's when I first understood the radiation effect mm. on the heart and how that could maybe also extrapolate it to mm. patients who get radiation for breast cancer or for Hodgkin's disease. And, um, and I thought, well, that's gonna be important too. And so it all sort of came together and I talked to our, my PA and I said, well, let's, let's go look at this and let's go to 
MD Anderson, and there's a program there, and who's who in cardio-oncology is going to be there, mm. and we'll learn something. So we both went down there. When would that have been? Um, Do you remember? Gee, I'm terrible with dates, you know, maybe nine, ten years ago. Okay. And so we met Dr. Lanahan. Okay. And we met a lot of other people that were working at MD Anderson. That was very exciting, mm -hmm. and we learned all about what the patients are and the radiation and all the effects and chemotherapy. And there weren't a lot of drugs then. There was Tissus, there was, uh, you know, Herceptin mm -hmm. was an important drug. And so we got into the Herceptin-Adriamycin combination and then looked at some of the other things that were going on, but that was before there was a lot of drugs. Mm. And so we thought it was very important. We talked to Dan. And since then, Dan and I got involved together, and I had Dan come over for our annual Enrique Lopez conference and make a presentation. And I had started, I was involved in something called hypothermic medicine and put together the advanced hypothermic medicine um, program and taught several thousand people on how to take care of survivors of cardiac arrest by cooling their heart mm -hmm. and cooling their head as well. And so we had a journal and we had some academics and we tried to put together a society and Mr. Westman and I started a foundation and the academics just didn't catch on to that. They just didn't want to be involved mm -hmm. in this foundation and so we talked to Dan and Jim and I talked to Dan and Jim is currently on the board mm -hmm. as a CPA and he's our treasurer. And so we said, Dan, we have just the thing for cardio-oncology. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got it all designed, it's approved by the state, we'll just change the name. Mm -hmm. And we got members, mm -hmm. and uh, we've got an executive board, and we can be off and flying like that. So that was the origin of the International Cardio-Oncology That was it. Okay. And it started out as ICOSNA, right. North America, and then became international for everything. Okay. And so... And Obviously, cardio-oncology has really exploded in the last 10 years or so. How do you explain the rapid growth of that discipline, given the, the way medicine tends to be a stubborn area and difficult to make changes? Well, one of the things we learned is it took 17 years to get 60% of doctors to give an aspirin if someone had a heart attack. 17 years, 60%. Mm. Why did it take 17 years? Well, it turns out that for retirement, basically about 6% of doctors retire, go on disability or something per year. So six times 17 is 102%. So in 17 years, we got rid of all the doctors we had and we had a whole new group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then the question is, how come we only got a 60% compliance of that? Mm -hmm. And so we studied that and looked and found that we actually got rid of the wrong doctors. <laughs> and so it was their instructors that had a retirement rate of 4% per year. And so they were still there. They were still there. And that's why it was 60%. <laughs> so we said, next time, okay, next time we're starting with the universities. Mm. You know, and we're going to get new instructors. And so that's the next step for cardio-oncology. So we have 50 universities in the United States that are involved. 
and we have very little private practice, but we start with the university. So as people get out and get in practice, we will embrace private practice. No. So we turned it around and we feel that instead of 17 years, it's only taken like seven or eight yeah. years. So that's pretty cool. That's very cool. And so that is so good that we're going to redo it with our new program that we put together called cardioorthopedics. Hmm. And uh, this is taking people over the age of 65 or having hip or knee surgery, and they have a one out of seven risk of developing a cardiac marker positive after surgery because of the bone power that's being released and the activation of platelets and the predilection for these people to have hypertension and thickened heart muscles and atrial fibrillation mm. and so forth. So that's what we're going to do. So the next step, yeah, cardioorthopedics. Well, that's exciting. And what about the growth internationally? Our society obviously is an international one. Well, yeah, and so it actually I think there was some simultaneous growth with Italy and then okay. Britain came along and then Canada was very mm -hmm. active. And uh, now, since we have a ICOS director, you know, we have been able to spread into 15 different countries, and it's getting much more exciting with our annual GCOS meeting being in different places yeah. and the opportunity to go to other meetings and be involved in other countries. Mm. Really great. And what do you think is the future for? Cardio-oncology. Well, the really important thing is the new research of mm. checkpoint inhibitors mm -hmm. and CAR-T, immunotherapy for cancer, mm -hmm. uh, T lymphocyte treatment for cancer, all, the, all these new drugs that are coming along that are being rapidly developed because of orphan uh, drug status, because of some cancers that are not very common. Very exciting and offer in terms of being involved in genetics mm. uh, of the cancer mm -hmm. and coming up with something that's tailored to each cancer and where cancer is no longer thought of being an organ cancer, mm -hmm. but they're cancers that are the same kind of cancer in different organs. And so we go for treating that particular cancer. You don't have to be an organ doctor. And so all these drugs are very complicated mm -hmm. and there's always going to be a little effect on the heart of some st some regard. Yeah. And so that's where we can help out uh, because uh, the decreased mortality of cancer has become such that there are people that are living with mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. And for five years and ten years, not five-year survival of not having cancer, but living with cancer. Yeah. And so that's becoming pretty amazing yeah. to be treating people and cancer becoming a chronic disease. Never before, except now with immunotherapy, have we had people with stage four melanoma. 30% hmm. of them are surviving five years out and continue to survive. Hmm. So it's remarkable. It's remarkable, exciting. Yeah. So we find out that there are a lot of people in university medicine and cardiology. There's a lot of interest in oncology. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of new drugs that are arising that have significant effects on the heart. 
such as adriamycin, causing perhaps 18% of people to die of congestive heart failure who had breast cancer rather than recurrent breast cancer. Hmm. So that was an index to get us very alert to the need to be doing something and to come up with ideas that would recognize this. But as the oncologist that I talked to about it, Dr. Shatura said, it's not only recognize it, but can we prevent it hmm. and can we help it? And so it turned out that about the same time, Dr. Linehan was realizing that BNP could be very helpful in early identification, and Dr. Cardinale was realizing that troponin could be very helpful in early recognition, and Dr. Marwick and others were uh, realizing that strain echo would be very helpful. Mm. And then we realized that there's actually treatment and that congestive heart failure drugs such as beta blockers and ACEs and ARBs might be extremely useful in this group of patients. And it's shown that basically you didn't even have to, in many cases, stop the drugs. All you had to do is get the rejection fraction back to normal with medications that were conventional medications for left ventricular dysfunction. So um, we could make a contribution to make a difference. And in medicine, if you can make a difference, that means a lot. In academic medicine, people are looking at the steps to basically make their way up the academic ladder from being an instructor, an assistant professor, an associate professor, a professor, and a chairman. And to get up that ladder, frequently you have to move every four years, and you have to be in a niche. And so if a new niche arises, such as cardio oncology, mm -hmm. and if that makes it possible for you as an assistant professor to be able to jump into that mm -hmm. and to have a grant and then to do some research and then get a new fellow, then you're on your mm -hmm. way up the pathway and you're doing something significant. And we found in cardiology, it's, it's uh, unless it's adult congenital heart disease, which is not so uh, popular in terms of research and activity, that you don't see very many young people in the waiting room. Mm. And so this right. was an opportunity to be involved with people that are young, uh, that uh, would, uh, some of them had young children, mm -hmm. and we could uh, embrace them and make a difference in their lives uh, rather than extend the life of a 76-year-old guy for you know, eight to 10 years. This was pretty meaningful to have some young people in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. so, it was very exciting, yeah. and uh, there are a lot of people that saw opportunity to help people. wasn't a lot involved, and there uh, wasn't a lot of people involved, and so you could be new in the field, and to have a new subspecialty of cardiology with a limited group of people that can get to know each other and work together hmm. is, is a wonderful thing in academic medicine. So That's great. we're very, very proud of all the people we've been able to work with and all the people we've got to know and how this is becoming more and more popular in at least 50 universities in the United States and mm -hmm. the international chapters that this has become popular. And it's an opportunity for me who 
at this point in my career involved in advanced cardiac imaging, cardiac MRI, cardiac PET, cardiac CT, uh, 3D echo and strain echo, it's a great match with my current subspecialty. And so I saw the opportunity to be able to contribute that part of my career to a new field. Yeah. And where do you think cardio-oncology is headed? What do you think are some of the areas that need either further study or greater advance? And what are some of the barriers in the way of advancing the field? Well, basically, we've got a critical mass. Hmm. So in Brazil, 533 people met at our GCOS, which is the Global Cardio-Oncology Society meeting. Yep. Next year will be in Toronto. Every year it grows. Mm. And so huge number of people involved and a huge number of patients who, with cancer, which was called, at least thought of as an end stage, now people are living with chronic mm. cancer. And so having that many people alive either as survivors or control of chronic cancer, and all the new drugs that are coming out, checkpoint inhibitors, mm -hmm. immuno drugs, CAR-T drugs, all the interesting new drugs that are coming out give us an opportunity to learn a lot uh, and be able to help people who are getting these chemotherapies. So it's the rapid growth of drugs, it's the orphan drug, policy of the FDA. It's the FDA allowing new drugs to come on the market quicker. Hmm. And it's the amount of cancer in the world and the fact that we can either hold it or cure it. That be has become extremely important. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the barriers to the growth of the field? Well, the barriers are always uh, the barriers of finance. You yeah. know, can we get the drug companies to continue this Mm -hmm. developing new drugs and as long as they're making money they're going to continue and they're basically coming out with drugs that will cure things that will save millions and millions of dollars for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So for example if you've got a cure for sickle cell anemia and these patients would be in the hospital time and time again with bone pain and mm. severe sickle cell crisis that that is worth a million dollars because you're saving $23 million. Mm. And so there's a, there's a need for these drugs, orphan drugs, for people who have limited disease that can prolong their life, that they can continue to be functional and social people. Mm. So we're pretty happy about that. So that a barrier would be not being able to develop right. the drugs. A barrier would be uh, not having the support of the United States government or other governments in the world, not having support of the drug companies to make sure that the price could be paid. Yeah. And so that can be a significant problem if it doesn't continue as yeah. it has. Has there been anything in particular in the last 10 years in your practice that has really been significant in terms of your ability to help patient cardio oncology patients. Any either new technologies or discoveries or anything in particular that stands out in your mind as a real advance. Yeah, well, we're looking at every 
every year we bring in someone who's made a significant contribution to cardiology to our 18th annual Enrique Lopez Innovative and Humanitarian Award Luncheon and Lecture and Workshop. Mm. And so with that, when I look back over the years and see the people that have come in terms of the use of cardiac CT and uh, the use of cardiac CT FFR and now the fat attenuation index, I see that CT is going to be very helpful in understanding not only the coexistence of coronary artery disease, perhaps the acceleration brought on by radiation mm. and uh, the opportunity to make sure people don't have underlying coronary artery disease that they've just developed that coincides with the development of cancer-induced um, cardiac problems. Mm. And so that's been a big, a big thing for us. And so we've had some great doctors, Dr. Antonides, who came in last year to work on that. And uh, we have uh, Dr. Charles Taylor, who came from HeartFlow, to help us with that. So I, um, I see that as we get more apps for CT for our workstation, we are able to spread that further in understanding what's happened with radiation exposure to the coronary arteries, what's happened to the transplants who have transplant vascular disease, and how we might be able to stop those things from continuing. Hmm. Excellent. Is there anything else that um, you think is significant from your experience that would be helpful for other people to know about cardio-oncology? Yeah, well, I wanted to say that it's been uh, such a great concept and such a great roadmap for developing the ability for new doctors to understand how to take care of patients with new problems that we are actually using the same roadmap on our next new thing which is called cardioarthropedics mm. where we've been able to recognize in patients who are having hip or knee replacement that they have a one out of seven chance of having a troponin positive after surgery if they're over the age of 65 and what is causing that and how we can prevent that. And as patients have become bundled in cardio-orthopedics, as far as their hip transplant or knee transplant, the bundling, if it results in cardiac problems and readmission and that costs them money, they're interested in preventing that. And mm -hmm. so using the same roadmap will be very expected for us because it's been so effective in cardio-oncology. So you're already seeing the translation of what you learned in cardio-oncology right. into other to the other next areas. To the next uh, new thing. That's exciting. Great. So thank you so much Yeah, for thank you for talking me. with I us. I appreciate it very much. I just much. have one more question for you, and yes, that sir. is when you're not involved in research, writing, caring for patients, how are you spending your time? Yeah, I spend the time with uh, my family and my five grandchildren. We have a home in Montana in Whitefish. Nice. My nine-year-old is a fly fisherman. Oh, and, uh, very good. We also have two little kids in Jacksonville, where my wife is right now. And so going back and forth with our children and our grandchildren is very meaningful. And I've got a son in Irvine, 
that meets us wherever we are, whether it's <laughs> Jacksonville or Montana. And so we're having a great time with the next generation. Good. Which is a lot of fun. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve. If any of our listeners would like more information about cardio-oncology or ICOS, you can go to our website, which is ic-os.org, and there you'll find a number of helpful resources.